Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We've had so many guests tell us about functional medicine and how to be proactive in our health, how to look at underlying causes, and what we can do to make ourselves better. But just about every one of these experts emphasize the gut and how important our gut health is. So today, we have an Uh, expert on uh, the gut, especially SIBO, which we will describe a little bit later, is Shivan Sarna. She's a SIBO patient, yoga teacher, and a popular TV host for 19 years. You might well have seen her on TV. She's no stranger to helping people, and in her personal journey with SIBO, her life changed. Now more than ever, she wants to give others the opportunity to experience what she created for herself, less suffering, and a healthy future. So welcome to the show. Hi, Dr. Susan. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. So I'm uh, going to be talking about SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's quite the mouthful. Yes, it is. So we call that SIBO for short. It's a lot easier on the tongue. But sure what is. got you interested in this area? Well, I've had digestive um, confusion, I'll say, since probably I was about five, my parents would notice that I, you know, didn't go all the time, and I was like, what? Everybody else doesn't, you know, goes to the bathroom more than I do. It was just kind of like, you know, an awareness. Now, I was five, and so I remember that, and ever since then, seriously, I have been a little bit different than a lot of people, and I have a lot of bloating, and that's hard as a human, but also hard when you're on TV, and, um, I kept going to doctors, you know, and trying to figure out, like, oh, is everybody like this? And they'd say to me, oh, well, you know, go run three miles. That's really good to get things moving. Or, yes, someone did offer me an antidepressant once because they thought it might be all in my head. And um, I finally had somebody mention to me that she had taken this really crazy test and then got these crazy antibiotics to, to help her and... It was probably a 30-second conversation. I was practically walking by her desk. It's like not even complete sentences. And it just I couldn't get out of my mind. You know when that happens? And I called her and I said, tell me what, what was this test thing you took? What are these antibiotics that you're doing? And she told me about it. So I got my GI doctor to write me a script to go to a leading university locally here in Florida where they did this test. And it's a breath test where it's actually measuring how many bacteria you have in your your small intestine. It's a very complicated test, so I'll keep that as a very minimal explanation. But I had the test. You drink a, a solution of lactulose, and it feeds the bacteria, and then um, as they sort of excrete gas, it, it measures it. So I did that, and I got the results. Negative. And I thought, oh, that's just another thing that I don't have, that I tried to figure out if I did have, and I just kept moving, and life went on, and I was confused, and I went to a functional nutritionist, I've gone to every kind of chiropractor, functional and otherwise, neurological, uh, GI doctors of all shapes and sizes, I've had acupuncture, steroid shots, Ayurveda, all these amazing modalities, and no one really made a dent in it. Anyway, finally go to another GI doctor who my girlfriend had gone to, and she called him a digestive detective. And I thought, well, now that sounds like somebody I need to talk to. So I went to him, and we discovered that that SIBO breath test that I had taken, it was reported as a false negative, and it was actually positive. So that started the journey into at least a proper diagnosis and then what to do about it. So can you tell us what SIBO is? Absolutely. SIBO is, as you, as you said, they call it SIBO, and for short and for long, it's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. 
when I first heard the term, I was kind of grossed out because I thought, well, that sounds horrendous, and I'm sure I don't have that. And what it is is uh, overgrowth of bacteria that would normally be in the large intestine where most of your microbiome is located, and it has made its way through either um, physical, like mechanical mislocation to the small intestine or what would be a normal flow of bacteria through the small intestine and the normal digestive process actually doesn't make its way all the way out because of a malfunctioning, something in the body called the migrating motor complex, which is, I call it, uh, sort of super refined peristalsis, like microperistalsis. And when that happens, which can be from either a physical like turn in your small intestine or uh, opioids or from food poisoning that you had even 30 years ago, and it affects the cells and the nerves in the intestine and confuses it so it doesn't do this migrating motor complex, which is a wave of cleansing. And when that happens, when you have too much of this bacteria, it could be good or bad, in the small intestine, it creates a lot of disarray, disarray in the system and how it functions. It can be bloating, it can be malnutrition, malabsorption of nutrients, um, oh, pain, a lot of pain for a lot of people. I've had it affect my ferritin levels, which has to do with iron in the cells, and there are a lot of long-term and short-term ramifications. There are some people that take antibiotics or herbs and have it clear up right away. And then there are other people like me who have a complicated case. Well, let me, for the sake of the listener, go through a mini anatomy lesson. I mean, food goes from the stomach directly into the small intestine, which is thinner, longer. A lot of digestion absorption takes place there. And um, so then it goes into the large intestine where we have most of our bacteria. Large intestine is larger and eventually goes toward the rectum. So as I understand it, the large intestine is supposed to have all these different bacteria, the microbiome, which we've spoken a lot about. And also when she mentions peristalsis, that's what happens in the intestines when they're chugging along to get the food to go its direction. If you've heard your stomach gurgle, that's a peristalsis doing its magic. So, uh, okay, so people have talked a lot about a leaky gut. How does uh, SIBO connect to a leaky gut? See, I think that um, I've asked that question, too, because I do appear to have leaky gut. I think one of the theories is, is that when you have an overgrowth of this bacteria in the small intestine, it can damage the tight junctures of the um, lining of the intestine, which could lead to leaky gut. So a lot of people feel that they have to clear up their SIBO before they can heal leaky gut, and certainly healing leaky gut certainly seems to help SIBO. So leaky gut, so if you've got this chaos going on in a small intestine, and if, since it's not balanced the way it's supposed to be, that can affect the lining of our intestines. Now, leaky gut, I mean, I guess a more medically appropriate term would be permeable intestines. And many speakers have spoken, if your intestines are permeable, leaky gut, all sorts of proteins get out in the blood system. They don't belong there. Then our immune system says, hey, we've got an invader. Let's go get it. We mount an autoimmune response toward this invader. And a lot of times through molecular mimicry, uh, the immune system, rather than going after the invader, will go after some of our tissues. For example, gluten genetically is very similar to the balanced cells in the brain, the Purkinje cells, similar to the islet cells in the pancreas, which make insulin, and similar to thyroid. And many of us have thyroiditis or Hashimoto's disease. So a leaky gut is a very serious condition that's probably leading to an autoimmune condition, inflammation, oxidative stress, which all of our speakers have mentioned, and gets us well on the way to a chronic uh, disease pathway. So this is very serious, but uh, SIBO is a particular condition that will lead to a leaky gut. Now, as I understand it, you can have a leaky gut or permeable membranes anywhere. It could be the large intestines, small intestines, esophagus, anywhere. Anywhere you've got a lot of tubes. Is that correct? I think so. I'm mainly small intestine, honestly. 
Okay, well, I'm just giving I a background. I mainly focus on that SIBO, so I don't know what's going on in the esophagus and the upper parts of the tubes, but that is very interesting, and I can't wait to look into that some more. Well, I've had many speakers uh, mention that. Dr. Smith mentioned it, and generally, uh, that's my understanding. Uh, so just the background for the listeners, so when we talk about leaky gut, primarily they mean the uh, large intestine, but it certainly can be in a small intestine as well. So sure. why should we care about SIBO? Well, because ultimately malabsorption of your nutrients is you know, obviously devastating on the long term. And SIBO does lead, there are other things that it can, you know, can bring into your life in terms of symptoms. The symptoms are particularly aggravating. The pain, the, uh, the bloating, the often fog of the brain, like, you know, brain fog you hear about. There are a lot of, here's the other thing, Dr. Susan, that's so important, is that SIBO looks like SIBO. But there are a lot of other things that look like SIBO. So misdiagnoses go on all the time. And one of the things that the gastroenterologists are particularly interested in is making sure people who have SIBO or think they have SIBO actually get tested to prove that they have SIBO, and here's why. If you do have SIBO, SIBO is caused by something else. So it could be, like I was saying, um, a twist in the small intestine. It could be the migrating motor complex, which isn't functioning properly. But let's say you get tested. You have all these symptoms that are like SIBO, and lo and behold, you don't have SIBO. Hey, it could be a tumor. It could be something much more serious. So that's why there is a big push for people to not just self-diagnose and for people not just to treat themselves um, all by themselves, and that testing really is important because there have been cases where people did die because they thought they had SIBO and it turned out they had like an ovarian uh, cancer. It's not not, uh, common, but it happens enough to where people are concerned about that for sure. I believe in listening to your webinars that this is the number one GI condition in the whole world. It is the number, yes, it's the number one leading cause of IBS. And IBS is the number one most um, insidious and most prevalent um, gastro, gastro condition in the world. I mean, insidious, that's kind of pushing it because, of course, there are other IBD, Crohn's, colitis, they can be very, they can be deadly. Um, IBS and SIBO are not deadly unless you misdiagnose it. And it is, I mean, IBS, it's, it's a tough condition. It's chronic. It's obnoxious to say the very least. It's definitely something that impacts your lifestyle. And if you have it, you really want to get rid of it. And if you don't have it, most people don't understand it. I mean, well, we get, like, they just go, oh, well, you're fine. It's only IBS. But in actuality, if you have it, it's truly, truly aggravating. Well, IBS for our listeners stands for irritable bowel syndrome. And 60% of irritable bowel syndrome turns out is caused by SIBO. So tell us more about the connection between irritable bowel symptom and SIBO. They well, both have the, the same symptoms, people, don't they? Yes, they have the same symptoms. And so that could be constipation, diarrhea, or alternating constipation and diarrhea, or constipation for a really long time, and then it flips to diarrhea. Um, that is, that's one of the sort of baseline telltale signs. And there's other things like anxiety, one more time on the malabsorption of food, your belly does get distended frequently. Um, you know, you can die from diarrhea, you know, and constipation with all those toxins in your body is also clearly not healthy. So it's definitely something that we all need to be paying attention to. And if you have it, as I said, it's, it's something that you definitely want to control and get rid of it if you can. And with it being so pervasive, you know, they say that IBS or irritable bowel syndrome is a, a diagnosis from exclusions because often they don't know what's causing it. And once you get into SIBO, you find that you do need to find out what's causing the SIBO because once you can get to the root cause, as you were saying in the intro, then you have a better chance of, of course, fixing or managing whatever is prompting this. You know, you have a chronic condition. So there are people who will have this chronic condition like I did for so long and was so miserable and uncomfortable. And once I started treating it, even though I still 
have it. Manning, managing it has made me feel better than I've ever felt prior to five years old. So we talk a lot about in these webinars and the SIBO SOS summits about managing it and a new normal and how to, um, you know, if you decide to do something that's going to cause a flare, you know, try to be emotionally okay with that because maybe you did want the birthday cake that day and you knew it was going to be worth it on some level. So managing with diet is um, one of the biggest ways that you can help yourself whether you have IBS and you go low FODMAP, which needs to be done carefully uh, and not for too long term because it can reduce the... um, the prevalence of variety in the microbiome. And then there is a combination of a lot of diets that most people with SIBO tend to go to. And it ends up that really the bottom line is is you want low fermentation in your food. So if you think about how people make beer, for example, it's like you can consider your gut like a little brewery, a microbrewery, and that this bacteria in the small intestine actually feeds on the food that you give it and then produces this gas, and that's what causes the bloating. So, okay, so symptoms of SIBO could be any abdominal discomfort, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, burping, passing gas, also fatigue, could lead to food sensitivities, depression, anxiety. And well, one thing that I heard that was interesting is that food could sit in the stomach for a long period of time, so we end up with um, GERD or esophageal reflux, for which they just give us antacids, which would probably make the whole situation worse. Is that correct? That is correct. And if you have not enough acid in your stomach, there, therefore um, the bacteria could be really loading up in your stomach because the acid would normally um, reduce the amount of bacteria in your stomach and then it's overloading the small intestine as it passes through. And if your migrating motor complex isn't working, it's just sort of like a double whammy. You also need the acid to get the pancreatic enzymes going and I think you need it for a lot of different things to digest the food. And if you don't have that, the food's food's going to be putrid. It's going to cause all sorts of havoc in the system. And it'll give you leaky gut. Exactly. What about about fatty stools? Is that connected with SIBO? I've had a lot of people ask that question. I think it's more associated with, as you were just saying, you know, with other organs. Um, so it's adjacent, but it's not the main thing. Okay, so what are some of the signs or, you know, like tests that you'd get back in the laboratory that indicates that you could have SIBO? So there's called the, there are a couple, but the one that is typically used and that typically is preferred is a lactulose breath test. And lactulose is that undigestible sugar that you mix up in water and you drink it, but you do a baseline. You blow into a test tube with a little plastic bag on it, and they gather the amount of methane and hydrogen and gases that your body is excreting through the air, and then you drink this solution and then you blow into these different test tubes every 20 minutes for either two or three hours. And they, they show and trace how much gas of hydrogen and methane is being excreted from the breath. And there are different levels that would indicate whether you do have an overgrowth or whether you don't based on the amount that is in your breath and the timing of it. One thing that if somebody's listening to this and they're like, wow, that sounds really complex, I don't know, I don't even know if I should be thinking about this, one of the little tests that you can sort of do at home, just simply observational, is when you wake up in the morning, is your stomach fairly flat? And then as you eat food throughout the day, does your stomach appear to just get big? There's no way for you to gain fat in that kind of a short time frame, but it just gets bigger. It gets bloated. And, but in the morning, yeah, you're totally fine. It seems flat. And then after a meal and as the day goes, your waistband expands. That can be a sign of this, um, the, the gas excreting the methane and the hydrogen and bloating. Well, is anemia and low ferritin a sign that we should consider SIBO if we've got the other symptoms? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, There are different theories about that, too, that maybe the bacteria 
eat the iron in your body or consume it or use it up. Uh, that's really interesting to me because I have been anemic and I have had unexplained low ferritin, which are the iron reserves in your cells. And, you know, they were wondering, do I have a, a bleeding cyst? Do I have a bleeding ulcer? Is there something, you know, am I... Um, is, is my uterus bleeding? You know, what's going on? Why would there be lower levels of iron? It seemed like it was from bleeding, but there was no sign of that. And then I found out later that a lot of people with SIBO do tend to have low ferritin levels, and they do think so, that it has to do with the overgrowth. So it makes sense that if you're having bowel problems and you're feeling frustrated to go in and ask your doctor to do a ferritin test. Absolutely, and most insurance covers that. And if you're really feeling uncomfortable, um, have them do a SIBO breast test and a ferritin test. Okay. But just for the listener, there are other causes of low iron. That could be low stomach acid, H. pylori, celiac disease, arterial venous malformations, reflux esophagitis, problems in the colon, donating blood too often, menstrual blood loss, and pregnancy as the baby tends to consume some iron. So it's just other things to think about. Sure. Now, a lot of diseases can coexist with SIBO. Are there any that uh, are strongly connected or they connected in some way? A, there's something called a differential diagnosis, and there are over 40 things that are associated with SIBO. And it can be everything from Ehlers-Danlos, which is that syndrome with collagen where you're, you could end up having loopy intestines. And so that allows the intestines to sort of, it's medically not right to call it prolapse, but that's what I nicknamed it. So they're just like not in the right place. And so bacteria can collect in what I call the speed bumps. Um, so Ehlers-Danlos is one of them, um, POTS. MCAS, um, the mast cell activation syndrome, they're really looking at that in SIBO right now. Um, Oh, my gosh, the list is long. It can be really confusing because there's so many things with similar symptoms, and which came first is a big question, and is one causing the other, or are they Lyme, mold exposure, um, you know, the Roundup exposure, they feel also can be closely linked to having SIBO. Yeah, from your podcast, I noted that a couple of things that are closely linked are acne rosacea, restless mm-hmm. leg syndrome, which could mm-hmm. be through the anemia, fibromyalgia, chronic prostatitis, although they don't know what the connection is there. So a lot of things, and it could, they could be interacting, and, and we're not sure what causes what. So is SIBO a new condition? It's not a new condition. It's been around for ages. They didn't used to call it small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. They called it something else. But there are recorded um, you know, medical journals where they have referred to it. So it's not new. It is very prevalent. So many people have it. They don't know what it is. They, don't, they think it's normal. They think, oh, wait a minute, I'm uncomfortable. You're not after we just ate the same thing, which really is a good time to talk about post-infectious IBS. And that is when you may have had food poisoning. It could be, like I said, years and years, decades ago. And the damage to the small intestine nerve lining, the, the lining called the, and the cells in there called the cells of Cajal, they get damaged. And you were just talking about molecular mimicry. This is where they also get confused. And so they send a miscommunication to the migrating motor complex to initiate. And therefore, these sweeping waves in the small intestine don't happen. So that's something a lot of people need to look at if they've ever had food poisoning and also if they've ever had gastritis or stomach flu because, you know, sometimes we have food poisoning, but we call it stomach flu. I've talked to people and they're like, oh, I've never had food poisoning. And then you're like, well, have you ever had the flu, the stomach flu? And they're like, oh, yeah, I had that. That was terrible. So sometimes we don't know exactly what it was that caused these symptoms of vomiting and and this really sort of acute moment. And what happens that I find so interesting is that people who've had food poisoning before tend to be more susceptible to food poisoning in the future. So if you and I went to dinner and you and I had the same thing, you could walk away and not get food poisoning, but I might because I've had such a history of food poisoning in the past. So 
So it's something to think about if you are wondering, well, how, why do I have IBS? Where did this come from? Or why do I have SIBO? Where did this come from? Or wait a minute, I've had food poisoning before. Let me, let me take a closer look to this, this cascade of symptoms. Now, you've mentioned that SIBO is not fatal, although it can be quite severe. And I believe uh, in a, in one thing mentioned in your podcast, in a study of over 2,000 patients, one-third of them resolve quickly, and two-thirds have a chronic condition that's kind of always annoying them, or one has to be careful. Yes, yes. And, you know, what happens is that I find, and this has happened to me because I do have, you know, the DNA, the um, antibodies, remnants of it, of Lyme. I've got, you know... Epstein-Barr appears to have been part of my past history as well as the food poisoning. And I'm definitely a collector where I don't detox easily. So, you know, that one exposure to mold back in the day may still be impacting to me, me this day. However, um, when you have SIBO, while it's not fatal, you really do need to know what is causing it in order for you to maximize your health and to manage the symptoms as well as to manage um, that condition that might be driving it, depending on what it is. So if it's post-infectious IBS, like I was just talking about food poisoning, um, and you're one of the two-thirds that has it chronically and, and in a complicated way, meaning it doesn't resolve quickly after either herbal treatment or antibiotics, it's, it's just something to keep your eye on because what I find is a lot of patients who have it tend to become histamine intolerant. They tend to become food intolerant, and it does cause leaky gut as well. So food intolerant, they can develop a lot of food allergies, which is going to be very difficult for them to manage. Especially because you're trying to eat low fermentable to begin with, and that's very limiting. And you are trying to still keep diversity in your microbiome. So the food choices for some people can get very, very limited. I understand that people taking a proton pump inhibitor, which is an acid, that 50% of them within a year end up with SIBO? Yeah, that's what I've read, too, and that's what I've heard. There are some people who disagree with that, which is really interesting, and I'm digging into that some more for our upcoming um, SIBO and IBS SOS summits that are going to be happening in the fall of this year, 2018, uh, because there's some controversy around that. To me, logically, that makes sense, but there's uh, a couple of people who really who are experts who really feel that there is no relation. Well, the way I look at it is you need stomach acid, and if you mm-hmm. don't have the stomach acid, you're not going to make the pancreatic enzymes, you're not going to digest your food totally, it'll be putrid, it'll go through the gut, and it'll cause a leaky gut somewhere. So whether it's technically labeled SIBO mm-hmm. or it's just messing up another part of your gut, I believe that at least 50% of the people will be adversely impacted in what they call it. Well, the experts can debate that. Yeah. But I, so, I, I uh, agree. I was on proton pump inhibitors for seven years, and the way I finally got off of them was my third attempt with um, taking HCL supplements. And it, I've never looked back, and I definitely have improved my health since then. I'd like to warn the listener, you can't just stop the PPIs cold because you'll have a rebound, a lot of acid, and you'll feel worse than you had before. So you might want to connect with a functional medicine practitioner to help you do that because, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not something you just stop without yeah. expecting some consequences. Absolutely. So let's look at some of the other underlying causes of SIBO. Uh, what are some of the un- other causes? Well, as I said, um, mast cell activation syndrome, MCAS, a lot of people are just diving into that now. I don't know if you have had somebody speak on about that on your show, but it's not fascinating. Yet. Have you? No, not yet. I'd like to. Oh, Dr. Leonard Weinstock just did a master class in Q&A for the SIBO SOS community, and it was fascinating. He talks about that. He's just come back from a, conve- a conference. I call it a convention. A conference where he was learning more about that. And he also, he's a gastroenterologist out of uh, St. Louis. And he also deals with people with their restless leg, their rosacea, all of these side things that um, are associated with SIBO. And he talks about how the lining of the gut uh, when you have mast cell activation, which is part of a whole inflammation constellation, is uh, really 
really hard to deal with and very tricky and insidious, and it has to do with the histamines, and it leads to all kinds of symptoms, including, you know, pain, brain fog, um, fatigue, everything that you were basically just listing there, you know, fibromyalgia-like symptoms, and you can do some very specific tests to see if you have these mast cells that are normally there and in balance, but when they become out of balance, they cause uh, this huge um, combination of symptoms. So that's really interesting and it's sort of on the, it's on the fringe, but coming more into focus these days. Um, but there, there are so many reasons why. So, so let's say you have Lyme or you had Lyme. Let's say people feel that Epstein-Barr, and I say feel because there haven't been any studies on it, but they do feel that there, some people feel that there's a connection between Epstein-Barr and SIBO also. Um, it's great to be able to figure out what it is in terms of like testing and is it really SIBO? Because it might not be SIBO. It could be some of these other things that, like leaky gut without SIBO or like IBS without SIBO or um, food food, like we were talking about food intolerances, constipation, just having constipation can lead to bloating. So, it, it's really interesting, but there is um, definitely a need to figure out if the SIBO is present or not. And you could resolve the SIBO and still have that underlying cause, of course, and at least it's one less thing for you to deal with. You know, the Epstein-Barr virus and other viruses, I mean, one can certainly see the connection between it and causing gut problems. I mean, with the inflammation, it tends to stir up a lot of things and a lot of inflammation, which can lead to a leaky gut in it by itself, although we don't know if it's going to be called SIBO. Right. So the viruses and infections and stuff stir up the inflammation and are very problematic. Also, I read somewhere that people that get Epstein-Barr virus and they're older rather than they're younger tend to run into more problems, which is interesting in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, so other causes, as you mentioned, is it, it was a migrating motor complex, basically when our peristalsis, you know, or the intestines are chugging along and moving things along when that doesn't work. So it just kind of gets stuff gets stuck in the small intestines, immune system and uh, various things that prevent peristalsis might be scleroderma or nerve problems. It could be structural problems of the small intestines that things are supposed to pass through, but they're impeded. So it could be many different causes. And what are some of the risk factors? Well, um, again, that ferritin level being low, malnutrition, micronutrient uh, malabsorption, um, they're just fatigue, fibromyalgia, all those risk factors. And the thing is, is though, on a more of a message of hope, because I know we've been talking about how miserable it is, I wanted to just address the treatments that they've been studying and talk about what's a little bit confusing to people when they finally do realize they have SIBO is, you know, there is a way to treat SIBO with herbs, and they found that to be in slightly more effective than the the antibiotic. And when you say antibiotic, a lot of people are like, wait a minute, that's going to wreck my microbiome. I don't want to do an antibiotic. But this antibiotic is called rifaximin. And rifaximin has a lot of different purposes out there in antibiotic land. However, what Dr. Mark Timentel from Cedars-Sinai found was that it does reduce the load of the bacteria in the small intestine. And it does not get out into the rest of the body and into that large intestine. It stays in the small intestine. It's actually the drug that they give uh, to people preventively when they're going out of the country to a third world country um, to prevent traveler's diarrhea. So it's a really interesting drug. And there are other things that that it does. It helps with inflammation. It helps with liver function. Um, It's a fascinating drug. And there's a very specific protocol to do. And in some places, it's extraordinarily expensive. I'm very lucky. I have great insurance. I can get it for $10. But I know people that have paid $1,000 for it. Um, And Yeah, it's it's really interesting and unfortunate. Some people have to spend so much money for it. And every time you do a round of it, it will drop your levels of this hydrogen or methane um, in the breath test by about an average of 20 points. So if you took the breath test and you found that your hydrogen levels were, like, let's say, at a 120, 
you might have to do, this would be extreme, but you might have to do like four or five rounds of the rifaximin, which in many cases really scares a lot of people, understandably. But it's worth noting that there is a, that it's a different kind of antibiotic. Now, alternatively, there are herbs that you can take, and they're very specific ones, like there's one called Neem Plus by Ayush Herbs, and then there is the Alimed, uh, which is um, garlic. It's allicin. And, you know, a lot of times if you have IBS or if you have SIBO, garlic can really make you flare. But this is the um, ingredient within garlic that's been isolated and concentrated and um, kills the bacteria. So those two are also something that's fantastic to do um, as not, not while you're doing the rifaximin, but separately. And then if you, ha- if you had hydrogen, mes- hydrogen dominance, the rifaximin by itself has proved to be effective. But if you have methane dominance, which is usually the one associated with constipation, people do metronidazole, for example, as one of the things in addition to rifaximin. And in the herbal world, Often the neem and the allicin or the alimed um, take care of it, but sometimes you can bring in some other ones as well. Isn't something called mullen um, an herbal antibiotic as well? What what is the name? Mullen. Mullen, or maybe I misheard that. Oh, oh Doctor Doctor Mullen. It's either Doc. It's Doctor Jerry Mullen, oh. or oh. is that who you're talking about? Yeah. He's yeah, the one who did the so. study that showed that the herbs were slightly more effective than the rifaximin. And if you can find him in PubMed. Okay. So back to the risk factors. Apparently, uh, some of the risk factors for SIBO would be using drugs, stress, genetics, oh, and I surgery. Yes, yes. Now, surgery, adhesions, um, opioid drug use, which slows the migrating motor complex, if it could even halt it, um, alcoholism, um, some of those, and, of course, a history of food poisoning. Now, I know there might be some in the audience that are reluctant to take antibiotics because of its effect on the microbiome, but it sounds like in, in SIBO that in some cases it's absolutely necessary and you can't go to the other steps of using herbals until you go through the antibiotic trials. Is that correct? Actually, they've, they've, some people don't take you down the antibiotic route at all, and you can get really great results with the, with the uh, antimicrobials, which are the herbs. One thing, though, is that it is, takes longer. So that antimicrobial, the herbs, usually takes at least four weeks, whereas the rifaximin is usually about two weeks. And then there's a third option, and that's called the elemental diet which is a liquid diet that has amino acids. It's actually the, um, the recipe, if you will, that would be put into a feeding tube. And it tastes usually horrendous because the amino acids are very unpleasant. But there are people that have been very successful with this. And some people actually do that first before those other two treatments we were just talking about. And that has a good rate of uh, removing all the bacteria from the small intestine because it starves it to death. Well, you mentioned there are different kinds of gas. So as I understand it, fiber is usually indigestible until it gets to the large intestine where the bacteria are waiting for it, eating it, and just generate gas. And fiber is such a carb. So... Um, there, tell me about the three kinds of gas. You mentioned hydrogen, methane, and hydrogen sulfide. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit more about those? So, so um, the hydrogen, usually if you're hydrogen dominant is what they call it, that usually leads to diarrhea. If you are methane dominant, that usually leads to constipation. Although I know people who are methane dominant and are not constipated, of course, there's always, you know, variations. And then hydrogen sulfide, they're just developing a test now to determine if somebody has hydrogen sulfide SIBO. There's some other ways of interpreting the test, like a flat line that often suggests hydrogen sulfide, um, but they haven't haven't released the test specifically for hydrogen sulfide yet. That's coming. And that usually um, is a different treatment. And that is often, I cannot think of the name of it. It's, um, it's an emulsified oregano. 
that people use for hydrogen sulfide. But there's, that's still up for grabs. Like, do you really have hydrogen sulfide? Is that what it is? You know, because of this flat line that people will see on the test um, instead of like peaks at 120 or whatever. I was just talking about of how many parts per million um, that, that you want to take down by at least 20 points each time when you do a round of the rifaximin, for example. Hydrogen sulfide's really tricky, and they're working on it. And Dr. Mark Pimentel, this June at Digestive Disease Week in Washington, D.C., is going to be revealing uh, his work for methane dominance. And he has said, because I talked to him about it, he has said that it's going to change everything. So I can't wait to hear what he has to say about his discoveries at Cedars-Sinai about um, how he's going to be treating methane going forward and methane-dominant SIBO, and it has to do with a statin drug, which I think is really interesting. Oh, my, my. That should be interesting. Yes. The but drama just to add, of SIBO. Just to add a little bit, like meth, methane-dominant, these people tend to have nausea, gastrointestinal reflux. They tend to burp, and burping and passing gas is good because it gets some of the stuff out. The gas, the GERD is probably due to back pressure. And mm-hmm. hydrogen sulfide, apparently this can go to the blood and the CSF, the central cerebral fluid, and can, you can get anxiety, brain fog, concentration problems, panic attacks, and it can ma- affect your heart rate, making it go slower. So all that's uh, kind of interesting, and I'm glad the experts are sorting this out to help the people in this condition. So, okay, so let's look at, okay, the different diets that one can use to treat this. You're, so, can you go so through that? There's this SCD. Like elemental diet, et cetera. Right, well, the elemental diet is like hardcore. That is done for about two weeks at a time, and sometimes up to 17 days. You can make your own with a recipe on uh, Dr. Allison Seebecker's site called, it's um, SIBO Info. Dot com, and you can look it up under diets there. That's a really rich uh, website full of great information on SIBO that's free. And you can also buy it pre-made. There's Nestle makes one. Um, there are a couple of different formulas that are out there that have actually a fair amount of allergy triggers in them. And I think there are a couple that have come out now that are less allergen dense. One of them is from... Um, Integrative Therapeutics, it's, I think, the physician's elemental diet. You can only get it through a physician's office. But I've tasted that before, and it just tastes like cake batter, kind of, or a really, really overly sweet uh, vanilla milkshake. That's kind of giving it a lot of credit, actually, because it doesn't taste that good. But um, and, it, and for a lot of people, if you have candida or you're prone to it, it can actually cause a spike for some people in their candida overgrowth. And some people are willing to do that. They're often doing an antifungal at the same time. Maybe they're doing Diflucan from their doctor at the same time. There are lots of different ways to approach it, but it is something for you to be aware of and ask your doctor about. So that's one, which is really... um, That one will actually remove the bacteria. So the following diets that I'm about to talk to are strictly for managing the symptoms. However, Dr. Norm Robillard, who is the creator of the Fast Tracked Diet, is a fascinating, brilliant man who proposes that this, his diet, which is a low-fermentable diet um, with a very scientific mathematical approach to how to consume the foods, um, he feels that that can eradicate SIBO. So it's really interesting. Other people, the majority of them, feel like low fermentable diets can only manage symptoms. And there's a lot of confusion out there that people think that if they eat something off of this diet and they ferment even more, that it can cause even more bacteria to grow. And that actually hasn't been my experience, nor has it been most of the doctors that I've spoken to, that eating does not make it worse, but it will make the symptoms spike for, you know, often several days. So... There's the specific carbohydrate diet, and that is one that is great for leaky gut. The, some people do that for SIBO. However, Dr. Allison Seebecker has created the SIBO-specific food guide and is still working on revising it. But there is um, on her website, SIBOinfo.com, there's a, a place there you can see it in its current version. 
and it talks about things you can eat. It's a combination, actually, of um, a lot of different low-fermentable diets and uh, summary specifically geared for people with SIBO. Um, there's also a Monash University in Australia. They have an app. I think it's called Monash University app, something like that, M-O-N-A-S-H. And they rate food about how fermentable it is. Red is highly fermentable. Um, yellow is somewhat, and green is you're okay. And it has to do with how many FODMAPs are in it. And I will tell you right now, I cannot tell you what FODMAP stands for. because <laughs> it is, Do you know what it stands for? It's, I don't want to put you on the spot either. Has, oh, I did at one point. <laughs> yeah, it's, anyway, anybody who's in point. digestive health, Look up FODMAPs. You'll see it everywhere. And with the low fermentation load, it helps to manage your symptoms for IBS and SIBO. So it sounds like the first place to start is to reduce or get rid of the carbohydrates since they kind of uh, get rid of the gas. It also sounds like we should avoid milk, uh, ice cream. We can use heavy cream instead. Avoid sugar, except possibly honey and stevia. And avoid artificial sweeteners. They make everything worse. Mm-hmm. And so the, some, those some of the starting points? Those are some great starting points, sure. Some people, um, and you'll note if you ever do the SIBO breath test, that there is a diet you have to, to follow um, for 12 hours prior to 12 hours of fasting. And rice is allowed in that, white rice, because the theory is is that the rice would get absorbed higher up in the intestines so that it wouldn't really impact the small intestine. That's interesting. And and honey doesn't allow um, bacteria to grow because it's too dense, so that sounds good. That does sound good. I think the um, other part of that theory is that it is the combination of the glucose, uh, and I think it's the sucrose molecules, Sorry, that's not my area of expertise, but that they balance each other out and that also it is absorbed so high up that it doesn't end up feeding the bacteria. Well, someone said they found honey in the Egyptian tombs and they found no bacteria in it. Is that correct? I have heard that before, too, yes. People have used honey historically as an antibiotic, and there are um, obviously different kinds of honey, and Tupelo honey is famous for never going bad, Um and never crystallizing, and Dr. Seebecker usually recommends um, clover honey because of the balance of the sugar molecules in it being more easily absorbed. So just general general points is avoid bread, pasta, substitute brown white rice for white, uh, avoid the white potato, it's got more sugar than sugar, Oily fish, salmon, sardines, mackerels, pr- pretty good. Grass-fed beef, organic poultry, good. Avocados, good. Nuts, seeds, pumpkins, sunflower seeds, extra virgin olive oils for salads, coconut oil for cooking. And it seems like a lot of the same foods that all of our other speakers have been recommending to stay healthy. Well, what's so interesting is everything you just said is that list of most functional medicine doctors and nutritionists going, yes, yes, those all sound great. However, cashews can lead to symptoms for SIBO. Avocado, you shouldn't, most people shouldn't have more than, I think it's like a quarter or a half. It's all about these um, portion control, not from a dietary caloric perspective, but from a how much fermentation is going to happen with that portion in your body. And so apples, for example, are extremely high in FODMAP, garlic, onions. And, you know, garlic is a great food. Let's face it, it's got fabulous properties to it. But if you have SIBO or IBS, it can totally, totally cause a flare. So those apples, um, Garlic and onions tend to be the trigger foods for most people with SIBO and IBS. And I used to eat apples all the time thinking, you know, apple day keeps the doctor away. Wow, I feel really bad after I ate this apple. And you can sometimes feel bad up to three days later depending on your motility and transit time. So that's why I think people get confused about, well, I've never had, you know, food poisoning. Food poisoning can come three days later after you ate the food. It's not like you're sitting at the table and you go out to the car and you're sick after dinner. It, it can be up to three days later. So since the cells in the intestines turn over very quickly in days, I can imagine that you can heal the damage to the small intestines. So can we treat ourselves? Is diet enough sometimes? 
So diet is going to primarily with SIBO manage the symptoms. It's not really a treatment unless you do the elemental diet. And this is one of the biggest points of confusion because so many things are treated with diet. But SIBO isn't really. It will manage your symptoms. You do need to eradicate the bugs. And that's why the elemental diet starves them. The SIBO-specific food guide specific carbohydrate diet, low FODMAP diet. These are all low fermentable diets, and so they do help with managing the symptoms. But most people feel that eradicating the bugs with either the elemental diet, antimicrobials, which are the herbals, or the antibiotic combination are the most effective ways to eliminate SIBO. So we have like two and a half minutes left. So a couple of points is I imagine we might have to eradicate the bugs more than just one time because they could come back. And you had one guest, Greg Nye, who mentioned that sulfate mismetabolism and stuff he thought was a very heavily a part of SIBO. So anyway, you've got two minutes left. So if you want to summarize your main points and let people know how to get a hold of you, refer them to your wonderful podcast. Uh, your last two minutes are yours. Oh, thanks, Dr. Susan. Uh, well, the projects that I've been working on are on the web under SIBOSOS.com. It's SIBOSOS.com. And we've done two summits, uh, which have probably over 70 hours. We're working on a third one for September 3rd. We're launching that, which will probably have over another 30 hours of free information about SIBO with different approaches. Dr. Greg Nye, for example, the one who we had in the last summit talking about what you were just referring to. And we also do master classes and Q&As where you get a chance to ask one of these experts your questions after you listen to their um, class for 45 minutes. And then we do two hours of um, questions and answers. And we actually have one coming up March 15th, 2018 with Dr. Mark Pimentel, who I was just talking about, which I'm really excited about because so many people will never get a chance to see him as their doctor. So I'm trying to bring people who are the ones in the labs, in their practices, in their clinics, working so hard to heal people that don't get a lot of exposure um, to the rest of the world because they're in clinic. So that's one of the goals. And the company that I started last year is called Chronic Condition Rescue. And we started a nonprofit called Chronic Condition Research. And part of the proceeds goes to help further research into so many of these chronic and insidious conditions. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, folks. So this is a little bit more information you could put in your toolkit if you have GI problems and a GI gut is so important in our health. So do your own research. You can help yourselves and others. And above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Better health.